0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. Um, Let's go ahead, before we get started, make sure you have your Bible. And we're going to get right to it and open up with prayer. Father, thank you for this awesome opportunity to open the word, to dive deeper into who you are. And Lord, we, King Jesus, we do surrender our hearts this morning. We already... Are pressing in in our worship, and so we continue that, that worship this morning. As we dive into your word, that we would draw closer to you, that you would be so lifted up in our midst, Lord, that all eyes would be fixed on you, that as your word unfolds, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us, that you would direct us that you would shepherd us into all of your truth. And Lord, I would ask that if anything that I may say while bringing forth the word is in any way in opposition, I just entrust these saints that love you so much that they'll navigate that in their heart and know that. To know what is true, to know what is accurate, to discern your truth. So Holy Spirit, that's what I'm asking. We wanna fall in love with you in a greater way this morning. We want you to be first in our lives and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Turn to Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 13. We're going to talk about uh, the first place of Jesus, that he will have first place in all things. Specifically, we're going to talk about him having first place in our lives and what that looks like as us being the reflection of Jesus. And Jesus, we know, is the image of Of the invisible God. And so we carry that image of the invisible God um, in our day, today, through our lives, in our families, in our relationships, whatever our spheres are. But He needs to be first in the midst of that. So we're going to talk about that. Um, Okay. Pastor Tony, I believe it was back in March, he talked about the seven mysteries. Of the gospel, and one of them was the indwelling Christ, and, and he made reference to this mystery of Christ in us, and I want to build on that, and so you could go back. It was amazing, all, all the seven mysteries. I would encourage us all to go back, and that kind of brings me to the point before I read this. Um, I've learned, just in, in a, a natural, practical example, when as an instructor and as a teacher, I think sometimes we feel um, we always have to kind of be opening up new things for people to unpack. And it's easy while doing that to forget the fundamentals. It's easy to forget the basics. It's easy to forget the building blocks. And what I've learned when training uh, with amazing, incredible students who have put hours and hours and hours into training and, and, and conditioning themselves and becoming skilled in defending themselves Um, For instance, we have tests that we do four times a year, and those tests are times when the students work very hard to get promoted to a new level, and each level has a certain amount of technique and um, defensive tactics that we teach, and so they will be very proficient in the level they're working, and they'll start working the curriculum for the next level, level one, level two, level three, so on. That's how we do it. We began to see, as students leveled up, they were always very sharp on the level they were in, and they were proficient in the level they were about to test into. But what began to happen is you could look at them and say, oh my my goodness, these people are extremely skilled. But we noticed some details. This isn't to call anyone out. There's a lot of people that attend the school here. I'm not calling anyone out. You're all amazing. But we could see details were starting to slip on the lower levels, level one in particular. So the, level one is the, the foundation, the building blocks of the whole system. So if you don't have that in a good position, then um, you may learn some new things, but but you're, you're losing touch. And what we realized is, is it's muscle memory, it's skill memory, doing it over and over and over and over again, just spending a portion of time and then um, – uh, you know, distancing yourself away from it where you're doing training with other techniques isn't good enough to retain those tactics that you learned in level one. You have to go back and not just say, oh, yeah, I remember that's that. That's how we do an elbow. That's how we do an uppercut, whatever. You have to practice it and train it. it, it's, it the, the skill is a perishable skill. And though we know the Lord writes His word on our heart, how does this apply? We should be going back to the fundamentals because the word is alive, number one. So there's always going to be a new living interaction with the word of God. Jesus loves me, right? God is love. We know that. That's foundational. That's fundamental. But it's not to say that we can't enter and, and take a new look with fresh eyes, readdress those fundamentals, to see how they come alive in our life in a new way. Every day, the Lord is fresh and anew in his approach with how he's building and training and developing us and growing us in our relationship with him. And so some of this, my point in saying that is some of it, you know, we've, we've covered, and it's good. This church is is excellent in covering those basics. And so today, I want to take that again, and I want to look at it and and share my perspective of the things that I've been learning. Um, Verse 13 of Colossians 1, we're going to read all the way through here to uh, verse 23. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Everyone say first place. place. Amen. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. That's really important. He has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. I want us to remember that and get a picture of that. What does that look like? We're going to explore that more. In order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So there's a lot to unpack here, but I already drew attention to the things that I really want to to pull out here, Jesus having first place in all things. The interesting thing is it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. So I know I've oftentimes looked at Jesus being made flesh, God dwelling with us, Emmanuel, as Jesus taking on flesh to come be with sinful humans to redeem us. But this is saying he's the firstborn of creation. So that puts him first in that process. If he is to have first place in all things, if the scripture is to be true, then there is a side of this, an element of this that we don't fully understand. That Jesus was the firstborn of creation, and out of him being the firstborn of creation, all of the created order was formed. And brought into existence. Does that make sense? It's really important to understand. And maybe you all already know this. But I know for me. You know my, the, the, the picture is Jesus a spirit with the father. Creating the created order. But it says he is the firstborn of creation. He is the image of the invisible God. And we have been created in the image. Of God. Of the Godhead. So. He's first in that process, and out of everything flows the created order and the uncreated, or or I should say the invisible. So things that are visible, things that are invisible, all flow from this, but he is the firstborn of creation. Also, the thing that I would like us to, to look at again is he holds all things together, but he's before all things. So he existed before all things and he is able to hold all things together. He's the head of the body, the church, we know this. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he will come to have first place in everything. I wanna move over to um, Romans chapter seven. I'm gonna be reading through this chapter. It's powerful, but I was studying this, and something hit me. I don't know how many times I've read Romans 7. Too many for me to remember or count, but I never saw it this way, and I want, again, I want to submit this to you. I want to argue the point of why I believe it's saying what I believe it's saying, and then leave it to you, and I'm sure Pastor Tony will, will let me know afterward. But I want to start with this statement, we know we are the bride of Christ. We know the, the marriage, uh, the wedding, the marriage feast is coming where the bride is making herself ready and will marry the lamb. We know this, right? Yeah. But I believe that we were married to Christ before. As controversial as that may sound. Let's break this apart and see if that may line up, okay? So we're going to scrutinize it and see. What do I mean by that? Well, let's listen to what Paul is saying here. Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies... She is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. And here's where I want us to stop and talk a little bit more about this. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law, through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. The law, you could argue that we're married to the law there, but the law did not die. The law can't die. It's the righteousness of God. It's who... It's the nature of God. So who's dying the first death? Jesus is dying the first death. And in Colossians, if we backtrack and go back to what we just read there, that's why I kind of put an underline there so we would, we would see this point. I believe Paul is saying the same thing in that first chapter of Colossians where he says... Verse 20, we'll start there. And through him to reconcile all all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So whatever Jesus did, on the cross, we know that he carried the weight of the sin of the world. We know that. The language that Paul is using here is very strong, that it's, it's more than that. It's that he took us upon him, reconciling us into his fleshly body. So when he died, it left us widows to a life of sin. It left us free and clear to marry another. We were in bondage, enslaved to darkness, to sin. But Jesus so loved the world, he drew all unto himself that drawing in a sense. We can use it loosely if, it, if it's too controversial to think about. But whatever he did in flesh, he drew us into himself in a union on the cross. You could say it that way. That's what Paul's saying here. So that when he died, it freed us. That we could marry another, the resurrected Christ. Let's read it again. It says it exactly as I'm telling you. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. What do we say when we say the body of Christ, when we celebrate communion? We're celebrating the union of being one with Jesus. But here we are seeing it in a, another light with another angle so that we were made to die through the law through the body of Christ. No other way but through Christ. He would have first place in everything. He would have first place in the death. So he has first place in that death. He invites us and brings us into that death through faith. We die with him. He, so that you might be joined to another, to him who raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. But here's the incredible um, idea of that. He went on to be glorified, obviously resurrected, his new body, right? No sin. So now he has absolute power over sin because sin doesn't reign in his mortal body, and we'll talk about that in this chapter. That's where sin reigns. But for Christ, he's free, and he didn't sin anyways. He was perfect, but he still had flesh. But now he has the keys over death in the grave. But we, in our spirit, when we're born again, We take on the new nature. We take on the nature of Christ in our spirit, though our body is still part of the old equation. We are left in a temporal state of having a body that's dead to God, but having a spirit that's now alive, that's betrothed and engaged to Jesus Christ. So when he comes back, we will see him as he is, and that will complete the marriage process where now we will be fully like him. With new bodies. And sin has no power because it's not in our flesh anymore. Paul isolates sin to our body. We're about to, to go through this and read it. So I took a little more time there. Let's let's push into this, okay? For while we, verse 5, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So, aroused by the law. Sin was activated by the law. The knowing that it was wrong is what activated it. Listen to what he says here. But now we have been released from the law. Having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of spirit, of the spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me, coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Listen to what he says in verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Pause. What is Paul saying here? Let's say it again. I was once alive apart from the law. When would that have ever been? Let's think about it practically. Paul said he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He would have started from a very early age pursuing the law of God. So when he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Any guesses? Feel free. What, what is he talking about? What period of his life is he talking about? Before he became a Christian. What else? What, what's the most obvious that you think about if you think about it? Before the age of accountability. A child. Before he started to study the law. Before he read the first, thou shalt not this. He says in his own words, I was alive. How is that possible? Because the commandment came, awakened sin, and when the commandment came, which was not bad, which was not evil, but was the very character and nature of God, bearing upon this young man, this child, studying the law, he started to look at the law and it activated the evil that was within him. The sin nature that was within him, became alive, not only did it become alive, it wanted to do more. Listen as we read his own words here. And he died at that moment. Verse 10, and this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. The law is life, but it produced death in Paul and in all of us. Verse 11, for sin... Taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. He's going to take this a step further. The law is not what became the cause of death for him. That's important to understand. Rather, it was sin. "...in order that it might be shown to be sin, by affecting my death through that which is good." So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So sin becomes alive. It becomes amplified. It deceives and kills Paul and all of us. So that sin would be rooted out like a a, a cancer or virus or a cancer cell in the body... So that it could be made known that it exists in there, not in a dormant state, but in a very hostile, aggressive, active state that has enmity against God so that there could be no question. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. Spirit can't die, right? That's why I said the law is not dying in that first equation flesh is dying, the flesh of Jesus, and our flesh is dying. So, but I am of flesh, Paul says, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So Paul's saying, in order for me to even have the perspective that I'm doing something I don't want to do, that means I'm in agreement with law. That means I know the law is good. That's important. Listen to how how he builds on this. Verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. No longer is it I doing it, but sin that dwells in me. How is that possible? He goes on further, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Practice. Everyone say practice. We're going to get back to that. It's really important. And again, We're going to draw on that example the things we practice in life to get skilled and good at. The practice of sin is different than being a sinner. The practice of sin is an action, is something, could be a habit, could just be the doing of it. But it doesn't define you as a sinner. He's saying sin is doing that work. Not you, not I, not Paul. Because Paul is saying, I'm in agreement with the law, actually. So it's not me doing it. And it's not a cop-out. We're gonna move on and, 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 and see how, how he clarifies that. So uh, 20, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it. He says it again. I am no longer the one doing it. But sin, which dwells in me. In case we had any doubt... Paul is telling us it's not us doing it. He's not schizophrenic here. And I I mean that in respect because I think as Christians we, and again, I'm not going to say as Christians, I think as Jeremiah, let me say it that way. I gloss over these verses because for so many years I read them and I say to myself, well, this guy, he had heavenly visions and encounters and was shown stuff and we can't understand and even Peter testifies in one of his epistles that this stuff, you know, it's hard for it may be hard for you to understand, but it's good. If you can, you need to. And I think that for me was kind of like a license to say, this is just over my head. But I really want to stop and read this because I believe the Lord will unlock it in our hearts because it's fundamental. It's not some kind of revelatory, abstract thing that maybe we'll get one day. This is daily life application for us that he wants us to unfold. So let's back it up again. We'll take some time. But again, verse 20, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, that's key. Where's the want? Where's the motive? Where's the desire? If I'm doing the thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Like cancer, right? For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. This is very key to unlocking this, in my opinion. I joyfully concur with the law of God, where? In my flesh? No. The inner man, our spirit, who we are internally that's been reborn. Verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. And making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. He's talking about his flesh when he says this, in case you're wondering if it seems um, strange language. He's talking about when he says members of my body, he's talking about his flesh. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind... Am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Again, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, with my internal identity, am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. So I, I was I was praying about this, thinking about this, and um. I was uh, thinking about the, the beach, and we did our, our beach day, annual beach day, for the gym. And uh, there were jellyfish coming up on, on the beach, but it was beautiful. They're just walking on the sand, watching the kids go, transitioning from the sand to the water. And it got me thinking about the transition. We know that we are comprised of what three main? Body, soul, and spirit. So where's the transition in that? It's hard to know, right? We know that our spirit, we're seated with who? In heavenly places. Do you think that there's any corruption in our spirit to be sitting next to Jesus and the Father who's an all-consuming fire? No. Perfect. Can the spirit degenerate at any point? Can the spirit, can you sow corruption into the spirit where, no. No. We know that, right? It's kind of, this is important. So there's a transition with the spirit and the mind, the soul, and the body. And I was thinking about this in the picture of if I want to walk on dry sand, it's clear. The path is clear. I'll stay in the dry sand. If I want to get to the ocean, I have to start to transition. And that transition, as beautiful as it is, it's very organic. It's not like you can take a line, Um chalk line or whatever and draw it across the shore, the coast, and say, that's the hard line. It doesn't work that way. Um, There's ebbs and flows. There's sand that's more filled with water and wet than the dry sand that you're walking on until eventually your feet are in the water, but your feet could still be on the sand and being touched by the waves, the foam, and pretty soon you could be out in the ocean so far that there's nothing anymore that you can touch with your feet. You are fully in that realm. You are fully in that element. In the spirit, I believe it is very much. You can look at a lot of organic examples in nature to see this illustrated. And so we may know hard boundaries and thresholds going out that door from a man-made building to the earth to the grass. And we see that in life, but I believe in the spirit, the transition is very organic between that which is our body, mind, mind and and spirit, or body, soul, and spirit. And, and why do I say that? Because I think it's important to understand it. That that's what Paul is saying here. When he says this, But verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul makes it clear that sin is dwelling in the body. That's where it is. Yep. He makes it clear that sin is doing the sin. This is important to our identity, This is important to understand that we are truly that person seated with Christ. That is who we are. We are not this. We're wrapped in this. We're treasures in this earthen vessel. But this earthen vessel is corrupt, and that's where the corruption comes from. That's where the the sin, the activated sin that Paul talked about, it's still active in our bodies. And so that war, it's, that war is not so hard to think about when we realize it, it's that way. My spirit's not corrupt. It's never going to be corrupt. There is a transition from that perfect, complete spirit in Christ to this body. That transition point with the mind, the soul, the emotions is in between, ebbing and flowing. I can tell you with my mind that I can gaze upon Jesus in worship, loving him, praying the the most beautiful prayers, and then I can tell you in my mind that I'm thinking some of the dirtiest thoughts, evil things, intentions towards others. Anger, pride, lust, all happening in that same place that I can't grab a hold of with my hands. But that's not who I am, and that's not who you are. That's the body's way of engaging in that in-between state, pulling, so when we give, we give ourselves as a beautiful child of God. I want to use this picture, and, and and I don't, I don't mean to stir up anything more than using it as a picture. I think really illustrates this. When Hamas attacked Israel, and they went into the towns and they murdered and and um, you know committed all those atrocities towards the Jewish people. Um, There are so many images there that are hard to even. And I I, I don't encourage any of you to start digging through that stuff unless you feel the hand of God saying, I want you to be, I think we need to be aware of the situation and we need to pray and we need to stand on God's side and we need to be vocal as much as the Holy Spirit draws us to be vocal. But having said that, I see the picture of the elderly lady, sweet elderly lady, with the Hamas around her putting a rifle in her hands. And she, what, is, what is she going to do? She probably doesn't even know what's going on. I mean, it's hard to know if the woman has dementia or whatever, but she's smiling. Is she smiling because she loves Hamas? No. They just slaughtered all of her people around her. I don't know what mentally the state there, but you see this beautiful elderly woman being put in that compromised position And I want to tell you, it is like that when we say yes to sin. We are a beautiful saint of God. Now, allowing ourselves to be hijacked, it doesn't alter the state of who we are. And sin is not who we are. Sin is the violence that's in this flesh, wanting to create more violence, wanting to create more hostility, wanting to create more separation from God. And it says, as long as you let me drive this vehicle... I'll be happy to, and I'll drive this thing over the cliff, and I will lead us in the way of death if you'll let me. It's still active. When you're saved, that doesn't go away. And I think for me as a believer, it's hard to understand that unless you understand that it dwells right here. It doesn't go away until my body dies, and I'm buried, and I decompose, and I'm left in a grave, or I am cremated or thrown in the sea, or Jesus comes back while I'm alive and changes and alters this corrupt flesh. Amen? That's the reality. So now that we know that, now that we've defined that, how does Jesus take first place in the midst of that? And the answer is as simple as a yes or a no. You have authority. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 6. So we'll back up to the chapter before it. And he helps us out to understand this more. Kind of did reverse order there. But I think for me, this is how it really opened up so I could see this a certain way. So I'll start with verse 3 in chapter 6 of Romans. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. We are invited to walk in the newness of life starting now, though we don't have the resurrected body. That is the invitation of God for us to live lives bearing fruit unto God, as Paul said, to live a Christ-like life. Verse 5, for if we, became, if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, and there is that union. If we become united with him, what is united with Christ in any state other than we view that as marriage? For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That old self, that corrupt, internal person is dead. That part is gone. It's no longer who we are. We're just left with the shell of that corrupt, internal person. Does that make sense? That's our old self. So, knowing... This, he says, for he who has died is free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves, consider. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That consider takes faith, we're going to talk about that. It takes great faith, right, to live this life that way when you have the body telling you every day, whether through pain, whether through temptation, whether through lust, whatever it may be, it's telling you the opposite every day. It doesn't just change just because we read Romans 6 and Romans 7. And walk out of here. I guarantee you, probably even this day, the body will try to assert itself. Sin in the body will try to assert itself again. But he says, consider yourselves dead to sin. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Interesting. So that you obey its lusts. He didn't say, do not let sin reign in your spirit. Because that's not even part of the equation. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. It wants to, but it doesn't have the power unless you give it the power. So it says, don't let it rain so that you obey its lusts. And do not go, and here this is so important, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members, your body, as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Can you imagine now coming into this place why Paul puts this, thinking everyone's going to think it's time to start having a sin party? Because it's not who we are, right? Just let the body do what the body's gonna do. Let's just all have at it. He says, no, not at all. May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin resulting in death, either of sin resulting in death, that's important, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that, Though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Amen? Amen. So, Jesus having first place now in this, what we're talking about, we spent most of the time here so that we could see the clear distinction that we're not schizophrenic, that we're not, oh, I'm good, I'm not good. I don't feel good today. I, I wanted to share with you the way the distinction is made so clear so it's obvious to us who we belong to and who Christ is in us so that Christ will have first place. But that is our will, and Paul said that. He said the willing is present, and that's the key, our will, the use of our will. Do I submit my will and not do the things that I know? Our sin to be obedient to Christ, and the answer is yes. And the answer is faith is the key to unlock that. So let's let's um, let's look at that verse in Colossians that we started with, uh, twenty three, Colossians um, 1, 23. and we'll see. That he says, Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. And not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So, the, so we need to be firmly established in faith in order to live this life. We need to understand who we are and who Christ is in us. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Could it be as easy as just having faith that the life that I live When I say yes and submit, is Jesus living my life? Yes. The work is taken out and I am abiding and moving with the one that's in control, my husband, Christ, the husband of the church, the bridegroom, the one who is the head of the church, doing what he does, being first place, In every way, not just in my personal life, but in all of our lives together in this community being first place because we simply choose to say no to the things. Now that's not gonna be easy and I think that's the struggle is we want kind of an easy formula because we know the tug of the body on us. We know the tug of sin in our body. When we're tired, when we're lazy, when we don't wanna pray, when we don't wanna read the scripture, when we don't wanna go to church, when we don't wanna be friendly and kind, to the person that's really, really, really ticking us off, right? That's what I'm saying. That reality will come knocking on all of our door very soon and may be doing that right now, but it doesn't change the reality of the situation. That sin in the body wanting to do what sin in the body does, you have power to say, I have power to say no to that and be in line with Christ as he lives through me, Amen? So, I'll leave you with this then. Colossians 3, verse 3 through 11. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our lives hidden with Christ is key. This is interesting. He's saying, give me the steering wheel. Let me be the one to steer and drive and you hide in me. Let's do it that way. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is our life is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. In other words, are you disappearing? Are you and I as our identity dissolving? No. He's hiding who we are because we don't even fully know who we are yet. But who we are will be revealed when he appears. Right now, he's just saying, get your hands off the wheel and let me drive. Hide in me and find out who you really are. Therefore, and listen, he says it again, verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. To immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once, walked. Notice he's not calling the saints sons of disobedience. He's saying you used to live that way and you know what happens. The wrath of God. You used to live that way but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. He's being renewed to a true knowledge. You are a perfect and complete creation, a new creation. But the knowledge of that in our mind is another thing, isn't it? But that renewal is happening every day when we make the choice to put off the old self, that's not us anymore, to ignore the body and put on the new self who we are in Christ, Christ having first place. 1 John 4, 12 through 17, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So here uh, John is going to say the same thing Paul said. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 1 John chapter three, two through six, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. I used to get confused by that because I thought, well, that just disqualified me because I sin. No, I don't sin. Sin sins in the body, and I chose for that to be my master. I don't sin. Sin in my body sins. Now, Don't tell that to law enforcement when they pull you over for something that you've done. I didn't do it. You're going to have some issues, especially if they don't know what Paul is saying here. But we know what Paul and John are saying. Listen, he says it this way in that same chapter. John says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Um, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Um, No one who is born of God, verse 9, practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. What is he saying? That's impossible. Again, I used to read this. I used used to be so confused. What are you saying? I cannot sin. I must not be born of God. That's what I would walk away with. That's not the case. It's absolutely true. I am a child of God. I cannot sin. My spirit is who I am, not my body. Not my flesh. Sin is in my flesh. He's basically saying what Paul is saying. That guys, understand this so that you know who you are, so that you live differently when sin knocks on the door. And you say, I want no part of you. Do you want any part of that? No, right? I don't want any part of that. But it's going to happen with every breath we take in this mortal body until the day we die or until the day Jesus comes back. Now that we know that, we can live accordingly. And it takes faith. What is faith? Well, we know um, because it tells us in Hebrews 11, one, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. How do we get faith? Well, first we know it's impossible to please God in, in Hebrews eleven six without faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And then Romans ten seventeen tells us, which is what we are doing today. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So now that you've heard it, faith can rise up and empower us to live the Christ life and to say no to the old self. And to close with this, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Sight is based on that which we see, that which is visible, that which is made of flesh, but that's not how we walk. We walk by the Spirit, Amen. Amen. So let's uh, close with that, and um, I'll turn it over. Uh, worship, worship team, come up. Turn it over to Pastor Tony. But um, I just want to pray to close this out with this. I hope I hope that this. Ha- I hope you've seen this in a way that really sets some things free in my life, in terms of identity. We're always struggling with identity, so Lord. I want to ask you that these words, that faith would arise in our hearts to hear your words, to put your words into action, the doing of the word, that it truly is, a, it's a discipline. I say this, motivation, as beautiful as it is, don't live a life waiting to be motivated to do this stuff. That is a deceptive pattern. We see this again in, in fitness and in training. Working at the gym, if when January rolls around, we've got a lot of people interested in signing up and doing hard work in the gym. And it lasts for most of them maybe a month, if that. They were highly motivated individuals, but motivation did not produce consistency. Discipline, the doing, when my will is present and I do what needs to be done, absent from my motivation. Motivation is deceptive. I can have motivation to go rob a bank right now to be rich. I can be highly motivated to do that. It's based on desire. It's based on desire. And that is a very deceptive way to approach our walk with God. When we are motivated to be passionate for Jesus, amen. We love the Lord, and it comes out and it expresses. What about the days we're not? Are we always in that place? No. The doing, the discipline. Putting one foot in front of the other. So, Lord, that's what I ask is for us to open up our eyes that discipline's not a bad thing. Discipline's a beautiful thing because we exert the authority you've given us to say, I am not that old, dead self. I am betrothed and engaged to Jesus, the bridegroom, living his life, and he is living through me, and I'm just going to hide in Jesus in my life. I'm going to hide in Jesus and let him do what he does as Jesus through my life. But I'm going to say no to that which keeps me from you and yes to you all the way. Lord, that's my prayer for all of us as we, as we uh, go into worship, that we would say yes to you wholeheartedly in Jesus' name. Amen. amen.